Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And today we are very excited to have three experts with us who are going to be talking about shifting global power relationships. Uh, to start us off will be Franz Cognier, who is uh, a political analyst and strategy advisor from South Africa. Um, next will be Richard Sakwa, who is a professor emeritus at the University of Kent and an uh, honorary professor at uh, uh, Moscow State University in political science. And joining us uh, to represent the perspective of global information and India is Ashwin Rangan, who is Chief Information Officer and Chief Innovation Officer at ICANN, which is the Internet uh, Committee on Naming, the group that actually owns or that that uh, monitors and governs the, the Internet to allow the World Wide Web to work. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Joel, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I, I really what got us going on this is, you know, there's been a lot of self-congratulatory, uh, uh, you know, patting on the back in the West today about, you know, how we've how Europe and America and Canada have united against against uh, the Russian invasion. And yet what we we've noticed and um, and a lot of this came from people um from South Africa, actually, initially, it doesn't seem like the developing countries are on board with this and are seem to be maintaining fairly cordial relations with Russia and, of course, with China. And we're, uh, what I guess we're trying to understand is why do the developing countries not share the same priorities as, let's say, the EU and uh, the U.S.? Uh, you know, well, let's see. Why don't we have Richard start off with that yeah. the, 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 from the perspective, uh, at least looking at it for, through a Russian lens? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the most important questions facing the world today is that uh, we are at a moment of uh, major rupture, disruption, and the pattern for the rest of the 21st century is beginning to emerge. And, uh, you know, I just say two things in response to that. Well, to, and the first one is that, uh, you know, I, I'm more and more thinking about the need to distinguish between two things. The first one is the the, fa the foundational framework in which politics takes place today, and that is the what I call the Charter International System. This is the UN-based system established in 1945, which uh, is very much the patrimony of all of humanity. Of course, China was one of the uh, founder members and one of the initial signatories to the uh, UN declaration in 1942 and so on. So this charter international system, this is the body of international law, etc. However, underneath that, we have various blocks, alignments, affiliations and of course just one of them one of them is the political west uh which is what i call this atlantic system you mentioned the eu and uh the united states you know that block you know and the question is what is it this atlantic power system and i think we really need to get um 
you know, get hold of it. And you're absolutely right. They're certainly patting, I think, more than patting themselves on the back. There's endless sort of self-praise. Today, for example, in the Financial Times, Gideon Rackman uh, is stressing how brilliantly the United States has done by NATOizing uh, the Pacific and stopped China thinking about attacking uh, Taiwan. Now, there's no evidence that China had any intention to do so, yet it's sort of says, look, we averted it. Well, of course, it's a counterfactual, so we never know what exactly it was. But that sort of self-adulation, self-praise, which I think is basically suicidal, by the way, but we can come back to that. As for the rest of the world, they look at this political West and they say, look, this is a bizarre thing. First, they are you know, usurping the rights of the United Nations. So it's not just the United Nations, it's the fact that diplomacy has ex- doesn't seem to work. This political West has abandoned diplomacy entirely. That is, diplomacy is talking to people with whom you don't agree. You don't, I mean, you can have alignments with people you do, and it's great to, fun to have chats with people who say, yes, you're absolutely right. Now, I like that as well, as much as the next person. But uh, but the Global South looks at this, you know, with... with uh, well, astonishment verging on deep alienation. Look, what's this war in the Ukraine? You messed it up. That's the global north messed it up. We in the global south are suffering all sorts of issues of debt entrapment, of poverty, underdevelopment, lack of infrastructure funds, so on and so forth. So what are you guys doing? You're starting another war. And then you pat yourself on the back in having, you know, in fighting it and, you know, leading instead of having a negotiation to bring this to an end you want to escalate and you want to get us involved well you must be joking and so you know that's i think the my first take on the issue well franz franz i'm just thinking about um africa and the the growing population base in africa how are they viewing all of this i mean it's a big place um there are more cities of over a million inhabitants than europe and america combined they're set to grow by a billion people over 30 years, 50 countries, vast question. It might be, you know, it's, it's where to start. Perhaps I try and tell you what the South African government would tell you if they were here and um, they spoke frankly. Now, obviously, I don't speak for the government. I'm critical of the government. But the South African government's position on Ukraine would be along these lines, that, that Russia was not an aggressor that 30 years ago, a process started where NATO repeatedly violated commitments not to expand westwards, eastwards, eastwards. Beyond, uh, beyond certain points. In Bucharest in 2008, NATO made clear its intention for Ukraine to become a member. That in 2014, there was a coup in Kiev. That the administration that followed from that coup um, uh, adopted uh, policies that were extremely aggressive and hostile to essentially ethnic Russians in the east of that country. And that in the run-up to, to what is the, the, the present conflict, uh, Ukrainian regulars had been massing on the, um, in the east. The South African government might feel they'd probably been green-lighted to invade the east properly, and if they couldn't be stopped, to go as far as cutting off the Crimea and the Russian port of Sevastopol. And that the Russians, anticipating the strike against them, um, were forced to intervene and did so via marching on Kiev, not in order to take the city, which wasn't the intention, but to draw the Ukrainian 
regulars back to defend the capital as you know the i mean people who watch this will remember the russian column sort of at the gates of the city and that once those regulars were 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 drawn back um the invasion into the east happened and that uh, russia would have been willing to settle along the lines of the often violated minsk accords and and the south africans they and remember south africa is a, a democracy it's a fundamentally free and open society um as free as anywhere in the west and the south african government would be of the opinion that the western analysis and the mainstream read on what has happened in ukraine is just fundamentally wrong on the facts of it and for that reason the government here feels it won't be stampeded into into joining the denouncement of russia and 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 i'll make one point and then i'll i'll, I'll stop for you the 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 as a consequence the view develops in in some of our media and and in business and in diplomatic circles western circles that the south african government is is hostile to the west and and indeed in 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 on some measure it has historically been its voting coincidence record with the us at the un for example 5 years ago was was in the bottom 10 with the sort of north koreans and turkmenistan it's now a little bit better but it's still below the global average but what what the south african government feels it's entitled to is to determine its foreign and trade policy and not have that policy dictated to it from brussels or washington and it feels very strongly about this and it feels it's not going to budge and it's actually going to go on the offensive and in some respects it's done that so south africa is strategically quite important you know it's the it's the gateway between the indian and the atlantic oceans the south atlantic has geostrategic real estate now as valuable as anything in the world uh, china is advancing uh, uh, to djibouti and tobata and equatorial guinea and 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 the south african government under pressure has recently resorted to actions as drastic as hosting naval exercises with russia and china off our coast commencing on the date of the of the uh, what what the western world would regard as the russian invasion of ukraine um interesting ashwin i i'd, i'd love to get your view obviously india outside of china is really the the big player you know really the my sense is the world will be dom- you know the three leading powers of the, of the next 50 years are us china and india india is also a democracy just like south africa w- w- what's the attitude there thank you joel i appreciate the the opportunity to be here on the podcast with all of you uh first and foremost I want to set the record straight and spell out ICAN and what it stands for. Uh it's the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers and we're accountable for the domain names and the internet protocol address numbers that are given out to the world and we help facilitate that on a global basis. And part of that work brings me to Brussels as we speak today. Um I'll be speaking personally in my personal capacity for the most part because we as i can we believe in the internet being available to everybody everywhere in the world on equitable terms so on the subject of the indian pos- position and posture and certainly the development um there's a there's a wonderful gentleman who now serves as the external affairs minister for india by the name of jay shankar 
is a, an extremely articulate gentleman and a seasoned diplomat. And he's authored a book called The India Way. It's almost like a blueprint of how India thinks and what it thinks about when it comes to its own posture and its development in geopolitics. Um, I'll set forth a few of the themes and theses that he advocates, which are framing the way in which India currently is behaving and the manner in which it's likely to continue for the foreseeable future. First and foremost, he makes the point that one in six people on the face of the earth as we speak is an Indian by birth, just in sheer population terms. And that says that there is a role for this enormous country to play on its terms, as opposed to having to play on terms set for it by someone else, which I think is a very relevant point. If you think of the institutions that we have come to regard as the foundations and the pillars in civilized society, they stem from roughly 75 years ago with the formation of the League of Nations and the rules-based system, which were defined in what is now traditionally regarded as colonial times by a group of countries that had the ability to articulate a future that they felt was or should be the future of the world. But the world has come a long way since then in terms of how it has evolved and how development has occurred, not least because of the, the rise of the two countries that you mentioned, China and India, which now are occupying forefront positions. China is clearly the number two economic power in the world today, and India, I think, recently surpassed another country to become the number five. And one of the themes that's being espoused by the current government is to drive hard towards a $5 trillion economy within the next 24 months or 36 months, which would place it in the third or the fourth certain place, just behind Japan, I think, if that were to occur. Now, one of the other constructs that Jayashankar puts forth in his book forcefully is that India is not necessarily married to a specific alignment. On the contrary, it has a long tradition of being non-aligned. It calls itself non-aligned. It used to be part of the non-aligned countries for the longest period of time. The closest associations that it has had to a block of countries to create a regional format, really not geographically in that sense, but a regional format has been the Commonwealth countries. But it has had a number of alliances, which are very interesting. If you think about it, um, Russia, India, and China created a tripact, which evolved to become the BRICS by including Brazil and South Africa. So BRICS came about on the foundation of Russia, India, China, hmm. where the rest of the world tends to look at India and China as being at loggerheads. In fact, they came together on a cooperative basis and continued on to create what then became the BRICS. There are other such constructs. While they were a part and are a part of the BRICS, they also became a part of the Quad, where one of the countries is the United States, alongside of Australia and Japan. So 
the United Nations is obviously a format that brings more countries together. I think there's 182 or 184 countries in that format where India has a prominent role to play. So the case that India continuously makes is that there isn't just the one definition of the world as defined by the West. There is, in fact, many concurrent definitions of world order. And India's specific position is that of where does it make sense for India in its current developmental phase to have the right kind of relationships on a multitude of bases? There could be a military basis that's very different from a social basis, which is very different from an economic basis, which is very different from a security basis, because each one of those is defined in a different context. And therefore, the contextual term then starts to define the alliances that India as a nation forms. So it doesn't have to be one at the exclusion of all the others. Let me flip this a little bit for you. So what, yeah. what I'm hearing you say is you can't really rely on India to take any long-term perspective. It's going to be whatever is in their interest of the day. There's not going to be, they're not going to lead any alignment uh, or power magnetism uh, within the world. Is, is that the way India wants to be perceived? Not necessarily. I think you could flip the same question around on its head and ask the question of the United States as an example and say that, is the U.S. willing to entertain a multipolar world or is the self-view of the U.S. that there is a unipolar world where the U.S. gets to define the rules and everybody else follows? That could be said of any country that is choosing to have a unipolar view of a multipolar world today. How is this um, viewed? In, it, it, the South Africa is obviously not on the scale of India, but does South Africa have the same worldview? And, 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 and Richard, and I'd like to ask where, you know, where the rest of the developing world is headed. So, uh, Franz? Look, look, South Africa is half a percentage point of global GDP. So it's not in the League of India. Perhaps you could lend us Mr. Modi and we could correct that. But um, the, the, what, as Ashwin was speaking, um, I felt he, he was making a number of points which would resonate with the South African government. You see, it's, 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 it's not entirely right to say that South Africa's ambivalent and, and sometimes somewhat supportive position on Russia translates and translates into it being anti-Western. In fact, I, I would say, in my opinion, um, and I, I do encounter parts of the South African government now and again, that government would be very ill at ease at the idea that it would become dependent on Russia and China because it frankly believes it would be treated harshly by Russia and China. Um, it's, it's not foolish in, in that respect. And it also understands that its relationships with the West bring for it great advantages. Uh, our, our, our largest trade partner might be China, country trade partner, but our largest trade partner is Europe. And one of the very few countries with which we record a trade surplus at regular intervals is, amazingly, the United States of America, due to the generosity of American trade policy towards South Africa. And um, 
I've I've often felt in over many years of doing this that Western diplomats, let me put it this way, Western diplomats based here will will often ask me the question why, why does your government X Y Z? Russian Chinese diplomats never ask why, because they have an innate understanding. And I think that Western diplomats sometimes go a bit wrong on South Africa because they don't understand the society that they're part of. They don't understand the culture. Yes, it's a fundamentally free and open society. It's an outpost of liberal democracy in a largely hostile world. But um, to presuppose that the uh, value system is is intimately aligned and indistinguishable from that of of the world's leading Western democracies is a mistake. And um, when the position that develops then is 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 the occasional missteps, and and often often the misstep is is indulging some aspects of South Africa's. Uh, 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 behavior, which is perhaps counterproductive, and then at other times taking a very hard line on on questions such as Russia, which South Africans feel they they're quite justified in their actions, and and that 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 starts breeding a sense of ill feeling, compounded by this failure to understand the society that you're part of, and then the the, the greater doubling down effect, and then we we get to what what I would judge to be a completely unnecessary position where relations between South Africa and the Western world are wholly frayed, when that is not the objective of the South Africans, and it's not, I think, in, in the interest either of, of Western democracies. And the, the South Africans would be much happier if the message from the West was, you know what, you guys have your view on this question. We don't appreciate that view. We don't share your view, but we, we understand. And um, we'll continue to lobby you, and you can continue to lobby us. But let's not poison the relationship over this. Richard, is this uh, something we see with the rest of the developing world, this sort of alienation between the, the West and, and the rest, if you will? I, I think there's elements of that. What's happened is that the state system since the Second World War has matured. We've had decolonization. We've had India emerging, as we've just heard, as a major world power uh, population-wise, South Africa as well, uh, that we, we have we know, 200 states in the world, 193 in the United Nations. Obviously, United Nations needs to adapt. India obviously needs to become a permanent member of the Security Council, along with Brazil, as long along with two major representatives of from Africa. We don't know which countries they will be, but uh, clearly, uh, probably South Africa will be one, possibly Egypt, Nigeria. Is that for them to decide? So that clearly is the way the world looks at it. That this, the that this. Well, I I believe we have slipped into a second Cold War, but the dynamics of this second Cold War would be very different than the first, because we now have a whole new pleiad of independent actors who are no longer 
willing to become proxy supporters of the endless struggles in the global north. You know, they've had enough of it. They've got other issues. They want development. They want literacy. They want all sorts of other things. And uh, they don't want to be dragged back to what was in Cold War One. However, they are being now cajoled threatened, sometimes even punished by the political West to get them to impose sanctions at the moment, for example, against Russia. It turns out, though, that their 39 countries have imposed sanctions. That's the Western powers plus close allies, Japan, others. Uh, South Korea is slightly ambivalent, but it's part of the sanctions, but it's not delivering arms and so on. So it's 39 countries. But that leaves uh, the rest of the world, which is about uh, 150 odd, who are not which is the what uh, the Russians love to call now the global majority. And the global majority now wants to speak. You know, the old fact, you remember the old uh, coloniality issue, you know, can the subaltern speak? Yes, they can speak and they're finding their voice. More than that, they're, they're you know, there's a, there's a pushback against the political West, assuming that it speaks for justice and development and all the good things in the world. But it doesn't because... It's usurping the role of the the role of the United Nations in international law. So the so-called rules-based order isn't a type a type of usurpation of what should be the impartiality of that international system. And so you know we are seeing a sort of organisation. Uh, we heard about the Russia-India-China alignment from way dates back to the 1990s. Then the BRICS. Which wasn't wasn't invented by Jim O'Neill and Goldman Sachs, but it was <laughs> made by them in absolutely rightly. So, and of course, we have the Shanghai Corporation Organization as well. We also have uh, shifts in globalization, in a de-dollarization. The fact that the political West has weaponized the dollar means that people are going to say, "Look, guys, if they can do that to Russia, they can do that to us." And so, there's a bit of a stampede out now because the dollar, the dollar will remain dominant for years to come. But it's a beginning. Uh, and there's there's so much going on. And so it's a moment, in my view, of great opportunity. It's you know really exciting to see India beginning to emerge and with its own distinctive view of non-alignment, which isn't a negative. It's not saying we don't care. They do care. They're active and involved. And it's a positive form of non-alignment, even though we don't necessarily have to use that word, but you know, it's a positive form of engagement. The same goes with Brazil. To say that you know it's a sort of uh, um, how can I put it? It's uh, it's engaged but not involved with the struggles elsewhere. So it's a you know the, the international politics today is entering into you know some people call it a post-Western framework, but of course the West isn't going anywhere. But my main and my final point will be it really does behoove the West now to look at itself rather more closely and rather more self-critically. Uh, and as we heard from Franz, I think that view which he puts forward of the South African perspective on the Ukraine war, it's shared, I think, far more broadly across the so-called global South than uh, those in the political West would like to like to think. And so it's a turning point in world politics. We don't know what the system is going to look like or the internet, the shape will look in the future. But it's definitely going to be more multipolar, more actors, more diversity in a genuine political sense. Uh, but we really need to find you know, a, a language in which to express all of this. So that's why I think this sort of discussion is so important. Well, I'd also I'd just like to um, point out for our viewers 
that Richard will be uh, publishing, actually Yale University Press will be publishing Richard's new book, The Last, The Lost Peace, uh, that's all about this realignment and kind of the coming second Cold War uh, through realigning uh, allegiances, uh, which will be coming out in the fall, I presume. Right? Yes, it will. And the, and the key point there is how we messed up the post the first end the end of the first Cold War and how we ended up where we are today in you know with new divisions new conflict militarization of course you know people countries are spending so much more again militarizing themselves which we thought that whole epoch was over and we could move into a more positive peace order in which investment goes into human capital into infrastructure and making life better rather than in the arms manufacturers across the world which is the last thing we need. Um, I just, um, you know, just uh, as we, you know, begin to to move to a conclusion, it does seem that there are other issues that are dividing the West from uh, from the developing countries, particularly. One would be climate change, and some of them are cultural. Um, I'm not so sure that the West's obsession, let's say, with the transgender uh, issues, um, is really going to play very well in, in the developing world. Um, the idea that, uh, you know, I know this from, um, you know, some people that, you know, that, that France would know in South Africa, you know, that, that you know, there's some question about, you know, can developing countries that have electricity shortfalls have to go all wind and solar, in, you know, immediately? So are there other issues that will also, besides the Russian invasion, that will also accelerate this this divide and structure this new Cold War. Yeah. Ashwin, yeah, you want to handle that? What? Franz? Do you have a, a perspective on that? Yeah. I yeah. Go, go ahead. ahead. We'll, go, we'll, follow, we'll get from all three of yeah. you. Okay. Yeah. Let, let me go. Right. Go ahead, Franz. Very good question. Very complex. On transgender questions, South Africans have no problem at all with that. They're probably further down this road than a lot of the Western world. On, on the question of whether a man is a woman and so on, South Africans would we would have firm views, but but it's a very liberal society. It's been from the outset, very different to a lot of the rest of the continent. No question on this. This is not an issue in South Africa at all. But the rest of Africa, yes. But other parts of Africa, it, it would depend, but, but, but South Africa. However, on climate, it's very different. South Africa has has catastrophic electricity shortages. The 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 consequences are very poor planning on the part of its government. The lights here are are often out for um, eight or ten hours a day, and we're meant to be the most industrialized nation on the continent. And I speak to you courtesy of solar power, so that I don't I'm not interrupted during this call. More than half of young people in South Africa do not have a job. Uh, desperate poverty stalks poorer communities. And we are very well endowed with coal. Our electrical grid, the transmission lines, run from the coal fields into the major cities. And we have vast untapped coal potential in defunct coal-fired power stations that could be brought back into operation. But our European trade partners send the message that if our government attempts to put those back into operation, 
it will punish South Africa's exports. Now that 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 mm. is deeply problematic on 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 a moral level, firstly, and 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 secondly, on a strategic level, because it increasingly alienates. You, this is the compounding effect that com- increasingly alienates South Africa from the Western world, which I think is very dangerous, because I think these outposts of liberal democracy are extremely important. And, and must be sustained, and they're not in conflict with the idea of also allowing them to have strategic relationships with, with, with Russia, for example. So on, on a question like this, at this juncture, the, the South African government, the ruling administration, has been in power for almost 30 years. The party of Nelson Mandela stands to lose an election because of popular dissatisfaction with living standards, a problem anchored now in the main by electricity supply shortages. And Western diplomats come here and development activists and lecture the South African government on what energy sources they believe it's permitted to use to liberate millions of its own people. Of, of most, the most region, recent and egregious example I came across was a group from Helsinki publishing a note that the South African government was completely out of line in thinking that it could could delay its transition away from coal i mean the the i mean it's impertinent beyond <laughs> words and and so you 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 raise a, a a very important point that um on key strategic issues blind um uh, tone deaf western diplomacy alienates a society from south africa compounding the effect of the, the disagreements about Russia, et cetera, and begins to hound the South Africans away. And this, as a just a note of history, South Africa became apartheid South Africa essentially in 1948 during a very important election on the back of the end of the Second World War. And that apartheid government, as one of its chief orders of business, hounded the political movement that Mandela later led, currently governed South Africa, the African National Congress, into the arms of the Soviets and the East Germans. And the consequence of that was to turn what by today's standards would have been seen as a conservative organization, which the African National Congress always was, into a a Russian uh, proxy, an East German proxy. The risk is that Western diplomacy towards South Africa is repeating that mistake 60 years later, 70 years later. In again hounding tone in the tone deaf sense, hounding a in key respects, not all respects, pragmatic South African government back into the arms uh, of 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 half of the world's sort of power play, which is not a position that government would necessarily have chosen for itself. You know, it, it seems to me that so much of what you've just been talking about, Franz. And what we've been talking about has to do with how people are getting their information. And, you know, you talk about tone deafness of uh, diplomats. I mean, the the information flow is fundamental to people creating their the productive, let's call it, relationships. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask Ashwin how the Internet plays into the change in information flow that Kind of underpins this non-aligned movement. Well, what are your what's your sense about that, Marshall? Excellent question. I have two different opinions. So, 
permit me, I'll provide you with both. One is the reality of what's happening, and the other is the ideal of what should happen. So let's talk about the reality of what's happening first. The internet, in many senses, has become a globally available tool, but it's also become an echo chamber where an opinion that is created, whether it's based on fact or fiction, becomes the normative narrative of the day, so to speak, and captures the imagination of everybody up and down the political ladder, all the way up to the very top, perhaps, many a time indeed, because they are required to either confirm or combat the current narrative. In that regard, the veracity of whatever is the current narrative becomes a question mark, and the internet becomes just the medium rather than the creator of the narrative, so to speak. So there could be perversions of intention leading to the narrative that's getting crafted, and indeed, I would argue that some of the more advanced technologies like deepfake video can become very harmful in the near, if not the current term. So that's the reality of what's going on today. But if you think about it from an average, to use the term that's already been used, global South country perspective, India or otherwise, most of these countries, if not all of them, are looking for the very things that everybody does, stability, safety, security, development. Um, however, in many cases, development elsewhere in the world has resulted in problems for them from a third world perspective. So think about a statement that Franz made earlier, where he said that Africa has more cities with a million plus in population than several other better known parts of the world. Now, what happens in each one of those is you now have a third world infrastructure with a first world problem. The problems are climate change. The problems could be crime because of the access and availability of the internet about how crime can be committed without necessarily having to pick somebody's pocket. So the need of the hour is really information about accelerating development so that their infrastructures can actually catch up with the problems of the day. That would be the virtuous cycle that one could look forward to using the internet as a means to achieve that parity because the reality of having a first world reality being pushed on the world at large is something that we can't evade or avoid. It is there to stay. The question is, how can we step into that gap between the reality of a third world infrastructure and the existence of a first world set of problems and close that gap and do it quickly and in a cost efficient manner because cost is a real consideration in the third world. Well, so maybe, you know, to, you know as we look um, at, you know, concluding, this has just been terrific. Um, I'd like to get maybe uh, Franz and, and Richard and, you know, uh, Ashman's really talked about how maybe we can solve this problem, maybe the role of technology. Is there a, an agenda? Is there a, a, a set of positions or perspectives that would lead us into a world in which the developing countries and the developed countries can find some sort of positive relationship? 
as opposed to increasingly hostile one? I think that's the number one question today. Uh, going back to France, for example, on the use of coal, uh, this synergy which you allude to could be achieved by, okay, coal is important, but what about new technologies, coal scrubbing, carbon capture, using coal, but using coal in the 21st century, first world manner, uh, as Ashwin suggested just now, which I think is absolutely right. I mean, obviously, uh, South Africa needs electricity, needs a lot of it to achieve its potential and its human and its its uh, physical potential, uh, but the, the uh, and uh, you know across uh, the continent. I mean, the nuclear, the China's building and Russia building nuclear power stations, which of course are getting a lot of opprobrium uh, from the West. At the same time, Germany is reopening its coal-fired and very dirty coal-fired power stations, and so it's on top of what Fran said. There's a hypocrisy of it, which adds to the sort of resentment, which is I think justified. The the and so there's a whole stack of ways. I mean, China is obviously emerging as a huge provider of infrastructure capital, which of course again, Belt and Road is uh, is condemned uh, in the West as you know debt debt entrapment and so on, which uh, you know there's some you know justifiable criticisms. But you know, climate change has to be tackled in a first world manner. I don't like the term, so I'm, I'm sure Ash didn't mean it in the sense that the West knows best. But they are advanced technologies which are global. And the patrimony of humanity, which includes uh, the internet and all of that technology, unfortunately, it's sort of grabbed and monopolized by a certain group, which just like international law, they're trying to usurp what should be the United Nations and the international system. My final point, which is something that really concerns me, is just how, you know, you, we began by talking about how cohesive the political West is today in this war and its congratulatory tone. But what's so concerning me is that there seems to be almost well, very little popular mobilization of our people. I mean, I'm talking about me who lives in the uh, political West in Western Europe. You know, where's we used to have an anti-war movement. We used to have a peace movement. We used to have an active leftist movement, which was advancing ideas of development. You know, I'm not talking about the Leninist left. I'm talking about progressive left, which is very active, uh, fortunately, in the United States, though rather marginal. Uh, but, you know, elsewhere in Germany, we've had some demonstrations against... Uh, uh, you know, for pro anti-war and more um, anti-militaristic positions, but there's what this. What we really need is not just this push from the the global south, which are, you know I'm delighted to see them now acting and standing up for for themselves uh, and their own interest in their own way, as long as they're in the context of dealing with these global issues. But you know, it's there. It's the West now which is most backward and lagging. When mm. we look at our own infrastructure, I mean, and the social under development. For example, I mean, just my little town of Canterbury, 70% of the children who on the road down to Margate, 70% of our children live in poverty. And this is, you know, well into the 21st century. And we're going backwards. The absence, for example, of dental facilities across the country is scandalous. So in other words, I don't like the term, but we are being third worldized as our resources are developing and diverted our attention to to a war, which was, uh, you know, which was avoidable, could have been avoided, and was almost uh, well. I won't go into all the details now, but it's obviously massively tragic for all concerned, including our populations in the West, and of course globally, because it takes off the agenda what should be at the top, which is 
you know, climate change, dealing with climate change in a way which is compatible with development. It's not an either or. It has to be combined together. I, I, that's really well put. Uh, Franz, you want to give us the last word? Yeah. I think no, no, just to, to answer your question, I, th I think there certainly are, are middle grounds that can be achieved through intelligent diplomacy. Uh, on the coal question, for example, all the South African government is asking of the West is give us the space to use coal for another 20 years so that we can alleviate some of the terrible suffering that and horrible living conditions of poor people here while we make a transition. And if, if, if Russia offers us nuclear power stations, you're very welcome to outbid them and make a better offer. And we'd probably take that offer from you. But, but to tell us, we, one, we cannot use coal, and two, we cannot talk to the Russians about nuclear power, is, 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 is simply a, a road in, into a dead end. China, Africa is today the largest consumer of Chinese construction expertise outside of China. So all those cities that we spoke about, with all those millions of people, the, the infrastructure, including the tech infrastructure that will carry the messages that people receive on their smart devices for the next several decades, are being installed by China at the moment. That, that is a dangerous situation. For, for Africa to find itself in. But it's the kind of situation that will, and, and, and risks the, the, the standing of the nascent little democracies that the continent is belatedly slowly moving towards. But that's not the kind of situation that's going to be alleviated by the West dictating to the South Africans, for example, that you've got to turn off your coal right now, or, we, or we're going to hammer you. As as a consequence, that's not intelligent. The, 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 that's not intelligent diplomacy. It's not strategically in the interest of the Western world this at all. And if that sort of thing can be alleviated, the, just just ratchet up the thinking a bit here and the strategy. And I think Western diplomats will see uh, uh, in South Africa, where, where a lot of my expertise lies, uh, will be pleasantly surprised at the results. You know, I can't think of a better way of illustrating the the move toward a feudal future than the conversation that we've had today. Thank you so much for being part of the Feudal Future podcast. And we look forward to continuing this discussion with you and uh, to having you appear on a future episode. The Feudal Future.